Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. My mom is like, uh, she she was really funny because she was trying to shop for a fan online. So I went to the Amazon. I did not find the fan that I like. So then I thought, oh, I'm going only fan because they only have fan. Hello and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it represents what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Margaret Cho, the legend. Truly, Margaret is like maybe one of the five or so most important comedians of the last 30 years. And I'm so excited. Um, how, how she talked about sex, sexuality, race, identity, with no fear, with no hold barred, influence so many comedians you see today. It's like wild. Preparing to interview this, I'd be like, that is literally what every comedian is doing right now. Her comedy had and has always been a, a mix of just like so raw, but also like so extra in the best way. She's just like always able to be somehow like, really passionate and focused on political issues, but also having the most fun talking about it. And like the energy she creates with her show, it's like so clear why so many people wanted to be her and have tried to be. She was on to promote her appearance in Hysterical, an upcoming FX documentary about women in comedy, which premieres on April 2nd. But the joke we talk about is from Cho's 2004 special, Revolution. The audio of it is good, but there are pauses um and breaks in which she is making the funniest faces in the world it's it's such an incredible act out so we will include a link to the video in the show notes because i really want you to see this because you'll never forget it it is so funny (laughs) so here is margaret cho i sometimes completely forget that i'm asian like i totally forget and when i'm reminded it's a, a bit of a shock. I was on a, I was on a plane, and um, the steward was coming down the aisle, serving lunch to everyone, and he's coming down the aisle. Asian chicken salad. Asian chicken salad. 
Asian chicken salad. And he gets to me, and he's like, chicken salad. What does he think I'm going to do? here with Margaret Cho. Thank you so, so much for joining me. Thank you. Um, you know, normally we, we dive right into the joke, but, you know, considering what happened in Atlanta shortly before the recording, I, I just wanted to, to ask you how you're doing, how, how are you feeling in this moment? You know, um, I'm very upset, actually. It's kind of a, it's, it's, I lived in Atlanta for seven years. I'm also a former sex worker. And I think that, um, you know, it has special meaning this entire time of violence against Asian Americans because of the coronavirus, which is like, I know that the people who are attacking other people are, they know that the coronavirus does not come from those people. Yeah. It's just an excuse to act out rage that 
has real, really no place in society. I mean, it's a very destructive thing. Mm-hmm. It's um, also something that is very difficult to um, kind of get your head around because we have a long history of invisibility in America. We have a long history of being othered in America. And um, there's a really no sense of outrage or a historical outrage that we've been able to express. I mean, mm. even since the uh, construction of the railroad, you know, to um, most people, they, they don't they don't even hear about it. But over 20,000 Chinese people died constructing the mm. railroad. And yet we have no mention of it in any of the history books. And this is, a you know, just from then to today, there there really isn't an acknowledgement of um, the racism and hate we have endured being uh, Americans. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's really disheartening, but um, it's also a really good wake up call to what we have to do and what we have to deal with. You know, con- you know, considering my beat in this show, I-, I was thinking about as it relates to comedy and, you know, there's a history of joking about Asian people in, in certain ways throughout, I mean, going back to the history of the country in the same way, but also more acutely in the, the more recent history of comedy, you know, you'll, you're, you're sometimes asked about what comedians say and what they're allowed to say and what they should say. You know, as we're talking, how do you think about um, the culture and a culture that includes comedians making jokes about certain groups and specifically Asian people in the way that they do? Well, it's, it's, it sort of depends on the intent, you know, mm-hmm. and also the level of ignorance you have around race, where you're coming from, and also what you're talking about. There yeah. are ways to talk about race that, uh, especially races that you are not, in a way that isn't necessarily racist. You know, there's like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things to talk about. I mean, it, yeah. um, I think when uh, we have um, a culture that's not really seen in American media, when you don't have depictions of Asian American life that are that um, normalized, you have an outsized vision of what being mm. Asian American is. So we have, these visions of bling empire, which I love actually, um, and crazy visions, which I also love, but these are, uh, very, um, specific stories about different people. And they're not the norm. All Asian Americans are not crazy rich. We are not all living in Beverly Hills. We are not, um, all the things that I think maybe, um, even inadvertently cause a sort of distortion of Mm -hmm. what Asian Americans day-to-day lives are. And so since we don't have um, that many depictions of us just every day, it's it's quite difficult to maneuver around having identity within the space of culture. Mm -hmm. In um, I Have Chosen to Stay and Fight, which is a book that came out, um, was it 2004, 2000? Your book that you wrote. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. so... um, the, the the last chapter you talked about exit strategies and it should be noted this was written during the George W Bush era so like the idea of exit strategies was in vogue 
you ask people to look inward. Basically, when they experience some sort of traumatic event, it's an opportunity to look inside yourself and see what you can do. And I was thinking about um, another thing that happened in 2014 when Robin Williams passed away. A comedian friend of yours said, don't mourn Robin, be Robin. And then as a result, you started a charity for homeless people. Um, I do think people look to you as a role model of how to both live uh, a conscious life and to sort of work activism into art in your career. You know, considering all this, what would you tell people? I think it really is about figuring out how to be an ally and also figuring out how to deal with your own grief and shock and sadness around these instances of violence. Also to not be silent about it. You know, it's really um, such an important thing to look at of how we are treated, how um, terrorism, domestic terrorism is somehow not terrorism. It's a guy having a bad day, which Mm -hmm. to me is the most insulting part of the entire situation is that you have um, law officials somehow excusing this because some guy was having a bad day. And that's not uh, an excuse nor is it a reason uh, to um, try to have sympathy for mm-hmm. a murderer. It's really, it's really crazy how um, we as a society can condone these acts of violence in ways that are totally unconscious. You know, I'm not saying that all law enforcement is racist or that they even are aware of their own bias, but they should be. Mm-hmm. And then, so how how does how do you then? I, I don't want to. Well, let me think. I don't want to say those. How do I want? How do you then? You you've had this career where you've been able to find all these parts of your sort of experience that have been difficult and and make it into comedy. When I mean, I'm not saying this is also new, so it wouldn't be like, what's a joke about it? But in general, how do you think about it when you then think about how to approach it as art? It's really just a kind of like narrowing down all of the experiences and feelings around it. Um, there, uh, there, there was something about um, after um, Cho Sun Wee, which is the Virginia Tech massacre mm-hmm. occurred, um, actually it was Bobby Lee, who's a really great comedian. Um, he, he and I were talking about it and, and his dad said, I mean, 32 people die. I mean, one or two is okay. And we laughed and I, I, I was like, I need that. <laughs> That's my joke now. <laughs> I, I took it from Bobby, <laughs> but I mean, it's really like, it's true. It's like very much like that's the outlook of like, well, one, one or two is okay. I mean, that the the it's like the ludicrousness of even excusing that that, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of layers to why that's funny yeah it's acknowledging you know that um we get mad sometimes also (laughs) it's acknowledging like how crazy the event was and also how um an older generation can somehow um lighten that mood you Mm -hmm. know i think um there, there's a lot of things about that joke that really, really are funny to me. And so that's a way to get around um, the grief and the shock of it is mm-hmm. to figure out how to make jokes about it that they don't punch down. They, they sort of are a diversion. 
mm-hmm. which I think is what comedy is. Ultimately, it's got to be a diversion. And it's also the glimmer of hope that life can go on because mm-hmm. laughter is an intake of breath, which is a life affirming action. And so I think that it's important to find a way and it's hard to do it when you're kind of in the middle of the grief, but it's also, that's kind of also when there's something's unlocked where mm-hmm. um, your uh, creative mind will try to get you out of a slump. Um, so I think that's the way that humor really does work. I mean, people have humor in very dark situations, almost yeah. um, they have to yeah, in order to cope. So this is another one of those things, but it, it's also, to me, it's very shocking and it's very, um, it really hits close to home because I know exactly the places they're talking about in Atlanta. Yeah. I know exactly the, the environment. And I know that it, it it's just such a, it's such an extraordinarily horrifying thing for it to be excused as somebody having a bad day. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of things happening. That's terrible. Um, yeah, that quote is the, I mean, there's a reason people keep on circulating. It is the worst possible thing to say. <laughs> and, and then, it, you know what it does? It makes me think of that song, had a bad day. <laughs> it's like, am I watching Grey's Anatomy? That song is like the most, um, I don't even know if they used it in Grey's Anatomy, but every time I hear it, I'm thinking about a montage. Yeah. In Grey's Anatomy. It, it is exactly that. Um, so I, I, I want to back up and talk a little bit about your um, background in comedy and how you sort of came to this perspective. Um, so, um, and I should note the joke that we end up talking about is from 2003, but for a bit of context, uh, when and where did you start doing stand-up and how? I started doing stand-up in 1984. I had a um, a teacher in high school who um, was signing her students up for open mic nights at the other cafe, which is a comedy club in San Francisco. At the time, was very famous, and actually, Robin mm-hmm. Williams performed there, and Paula Poundstone, who is the best. Yeah. And so I um, started doing shows there. Um, at first, I started with a partner. So my partner was Sam Rockwell, who's a very famous actor. <laughs> yes. Now. Yes. Um. But uh, he ended up uh, going to New York with his mom and, and, and pursuing acting. And I stayed in San Francisco and I did comedy. And um, I really fell in love with the art form. I also fell in love with the lifestyle of it. Um, there was something that was really uh, potent about the mm-hmm. ability to be a stand-up comedian. Even though I never saw other Asian American women being stand-up comics, there was something that was just... It just fit with me, although it was weird, too, because, you know, you would go to these shows and in the 80s, all in San Francisco, because there's a sizable Asian-American population in San Francisco. All the jokes would be about Asian drivers. So my first joke was, my name is Margaret Cho and I drive very well. Mm. And then people would be like kind of confronted with their own embarrassment of like, oh, I did laugh at that joke. And I I guess I do have to confront my own biases that I do think Asians are bad drivers and like. I think it's a very, um, it, it's a very interesting thing when you're very different, but comedy at its core is really about the perspective of the outsider. Mm-hmm. So being um, that, it, I really fit in there. Yeah. Um, I feel like, unlike most cities, you can kind of tell when a comedian's from San Francisco. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think it influenced you being a San Francisco comedian and th- having that be sort of the baseline of what you expect comedy to be like? Well, um, San Francisco was a very, um, it, it was a very big comedy city. I mean, it, I think it still is to some extent, yeah. although the, the city's changed a lot. But there was um, a very political outlook. There was this very big nightclub culture of the 60s to draw from. You know, this is like where you would have people like Mort Saul, who's still there, um, and Mm -hmm. uh, who would come around with Robin Williams every once in a while. And um, people like uh, Lenny Bruce would be around at the Hungry Eye or the Purple Onion on um, Broadway. So you had this whole thing of like, the beat generation, mm. the city lights bookstore, all of this kind of stuff that um, was counterculture and in, in a very old establishment counterculture. So you yeah. had um, outsider perspectives kind of being very central to the city's identity. Yeah. So though you performed in clubs during the sort of comedy boom of the 80s and in the 90s in LA, you became a major part of the alternative scene you know, doing shows at bookstores, hanging out with Janine Garofalo, Kathy Griffin. And at a time that's so stylistically revolutionary in terms of openness, in terms of experimenting, in terms of storytelling, though you were always sort of yourself in that, what do you remember from that time, those spaces, and, and how your comedy evolved as a result? I remember um, drinking a lot of coffee at night, which to me seems really disgusting. But we would drink the strongest coffee at night. And... um smoke cigarettes and and um and be up till like five in the morning like a lifestyle to me that seems really impossible mm-hmm. now i couldn't yeah, yeah. even imagine it but um yeah we were uh wearing a lot of corduroy we were um all friends i don't even know like how do we even get together because we didn't have texting we'd have to call each other on the landline telephone telephone mm-hmm. there was something going on every single night there was something happening um all across uh, the spectrum of like people, people would be at my house or we would at be Janine's house. And it was all like people that are very big stars now. And to think of it, it, it seems very odd, but it was, it was very real. And we were all just kind of struggling and getting by and some were getting more than others. And there was a lot of um, projects happening sort of within our circle. That would be like the Ben Stiller show or mm-hmm. Mr. Show, which, um, you know, they they were sort of pushing the boundaries of comedy and doing things very differently. So I I feel like there there was a lot going on entertainment wise that you could go to see, but also um, just to be involved in. There's a mm-hmm. sort of like eight mile radius that we would sort of go around, not eight mile in a in an M M&M way, but sure, eight yeah. miles in, in Hollywood, where you would just be going in a circle, and it would be like these clubs. It would be like largo or like the improv or you know um there's there's so many different things like that we would just be doing and um every night had a different purpose did your comedy reflect that lifestyle do you feel like i think so because there was the the thing about that time of comedy it was really two camps it was sort of like the comedy clubs and then the alternative clubs and very rarely could you cross over into both. And I was able to do both, which is really lucky. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you didn't have that ability. Why do you think it was about you that was able to cross over? Um, I think because I was really um, just different anyway. And mm-hmm. so I didn't 
I didn't really match the aesthetic of the comedy club, nor did I match the aesthetic of alternative comedy yet. For some reason, it worked in both places. That makes sense. So um, you were not the, the first queer comedian, you know, as you'll note, and you weren't the first female comedian that had a large gay male fan base. There's Joan Rivers. Kathy Griffin mm-hmm. was your contemporary. But it, it felt like you you were one of the first or first comedians at your level to not only have that fan base, but to talk about gay culture in a way that did not feel like it needed to explain it to an audience. You sort of talked directly to them. You, you talk about gay porn stars and you didn't feel like the need mm-hmm. to generalize it. You've talked about the influence drag queens had on you growing up. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like beyond sort of being autobiographically queer in your comedy, you had a queer sensibility to the the art itself? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I grew up in a very queer environment. I grew up in San Francisco. My parents owned a gay bookstore and they had um, people there who were all, um, you know, in sort of like the beginning stages of activism with Harvey Milk Mm. and getting into gay pride politics and um, getting tattooed from head to toe. And, uh, you know, there was so much queerness around me that it was not even queer. It was like very normal. Like to me, it's like the queerness is like actually just normalness to the other people that are queer, (laughs) but it's, um, it's something that I always noticed about um, Joan Rivers is that um, she never really had to explain herself to mm-hmm. a gay audience because they really loved her as she was. And that to me was really appealing and really important. And she became a very important person later on in, in my life. Um, and not just an artist to follow, but also a friend. So I was really lucky in that regard. Yeah. Um the only the other thing that I feel like is important for context is um, George W. Bush obviously gets elected <laughs> into the year two thousand, and it does feel mm-hmm. like your comedy becomes much more pointed after mm-hmm. that. Can you talk about that change and and how deliberate you were about that pivot, or just sort of how that happened organically? I think it really happened really organically. You know, it was. Um, a, a really important thing. Like, I think that we finally had um, a political landscape we wanted to fight against. And this divide in America, mm-hmm. which became really a liberal versus conservative, which I think is um, actually gotten worse over the last five years, maybe more, you know, I mean, it's gotten pretty chaotic and yeah. difficult. Um, but it, it's something that really made sense to me. And it also, still does, you know, and I think, um, it, it's, it's really weird how, uh, there, there is like this side and then that side. And then it's kind of like where we became divided is kind of weird because there was much more of a middle ground, I think in the nineties and early, early 2000, it was really after nine 11, that things seemed to really split Mm. and it was more of a reaction to what had happened and understanding that. And, at that time, really kind of identifying as a New Yorker, because I'd been there for so long doing my show there and stuff. So it was like this thing of wanting to um, really be patriotic in your own way, um, which represented you, which to Mm -hmm. me was really about dissent and about um, protest and about action. That makes sense. Um, So so we're now at the point where we could talk about the joke. Uh, So... Before we talk about actually writing it and putting it in your act, can you 
I, can you talk about the actual events that inspired it? Was there a oh. plane situation? Yeah, I was on a flight um, and it was really funny because I don't remember where I was going, but I was tra- traveling all the time then. Um, the a flight attendant, who came, you know, I was in the very back of the plane, but he was like bringing down like these Asian chicken salads and he's giving everybody the, the Asian chicken salad, Asian chicken salad, Asian chicken salad. And then he gets to me and he just goes, and it was really funny because it was like I I think he was trying to be sensitive. Like it the the funniness of it is that the uh self-censoring because you're trying to be sensitive to the situation, but it was so ludicrous to me. And that 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 idea of like, what does he think I'm gonna do? Yeah. This is not the salad of my people. That um and throw it in his face and like and I, in the in the joke when I would do it on stage I would like cut it in half with a samurai sword um which is how, how you should chop the salad this is not the salad of my people and it's just really um it was just really funny to me and and it's not to frame him as being racist or to be a racist incident it's not even that it's just yeah. like the difference of like somebody trying to be sensitive but also trying to not insult really is kind of a weirdly an insult but not really it's very it's a very strange thing but it's mostly so that i could do the toshira mufuni face got it (laughs) which i love that so how can you talk about how you got from this thing happened you had the feeling to the face like what is the sort of I, I've oh. heard you talk, you don't write things down, but sort of what is the, either the thought process and or the actual uh, creative process? Well, it, it's like um, the, the there was really, there's no creative process because the joke is like, when I do it on stage, it's just that joke. But the 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 joke is really to do the Tashir Mufuni face. And it, it is that kind of like the Yukio-e like um, floating world portraits of samurai, mm-hmm. you know, from the 1800s or whenever. It's like that, uh, very classical Japanese art that shows these like <laughs> samurai guys and I, I was just wanted to do the face and how um, it is that like wh- what do you think Asianness is and yeah. what do you think um, that th- something so mundane as a salad somehow has to denote that it's Asian but then when you actually are confronted with a real Asian you want to re- retract because they may have better ideas on how to be Asian than you do <laughs> It's just a funny thing. Like, yeah. there's a lot of different aspects of it that are very true to me, but also very ludicrous. The um, so the first time you did it, did you have the idea of the doing the face and doing the whole act out? Yeah, I think you have to have the whole face and then the body, and then in my mind, I'm like in a, the one of those like kimonos that you would put your arms in. Like, mm-hmm. maybe I would tie it up if I'm like happen to be working on the rice patty. I would tie up the thing with like a, a cord. Um, I do love Kurosawa movies, so it's very Yojimbo um, kind of realness. It's very uh, Seven Samurai that joke, and uh, it's to me, it's just really ridiculous. It's it's but it's a perfect encapsulation I think of what I do as a comedian or yeah. what I uh, imagine myself when I think about, Oh, what do I do as a comic? Well, I think it is taking, um, taking uh, this sort of like uh, notes that I get from white privilege 
and referring them to being othered. And mm-hmm. so that's another kind of like conversation in that joke. Yeah. So the joke starts, um, I, the setup, it, it, you know, because the joke is, there's not much talking as jokes go. It's not many. It's like you really sort of set a scene and then you just sort of play it out. And, you know, it just watching back, the audience is freaking out when you do the act mm-hmm. out. <laughs> um, so you set it up by you forget that you're Asian sometimes is sort of the setting. And then this is how mm-hmm. it reminds you. What is that? What is the meaning of that part to you? What are well, you hoping that's Because that I can't see myself because I'm inside. Yeah. So it's hard for me to know because I'm not always in front of a mirror. And I'm not also one of the persons that like takes a lot of photos. Selfies are not my kind of default. And so it's it's a struggle for me to even think about it. And and back then we didn't really even do selfies. So um it it's just like I forget because I'm in here and I don't look like what I look like in my head. I don't look mm-hmm. like anything. I'm just yeah, I can yeah. hear my voice, but I can't see it. So I don't know. Hey, you're the brain floating around. And then like, yes, that, this, the, th- if he, if I, I, yeah, it makes you wonder, like if he said Asian chicken salad to you, then what would ha- I mean? Like, it's sort of, I know it's funny. Cause it's like, but the fact that he changed, it wasn't, he, if I, if he had said Asian chicken salad, I probably wouldn't have noticed Yeah, because he was saying it to everybody. Then it was just another thing that just happened. But the fact that he changed, was so funny because it was like what like what I like oh that's right I'm Asian but like I would have something to say that that the expectation that I may take that his thought process of coming down and being like oh there's an Asian lady I better not say it's Asian because you could imagine him you know because you do you what's so great about the joke is it's sort of like small setup one scene and then it's like a sketch and it's sort of like how it heightens but it's like you imagine him going through his head because he sees you at the end of his. R- so every time he does it, every person he gives mm-hmm. an Asian chicken salad to, it's almost like you can imagine inner monologue. It's like, okay, I, I need to keep on saying this, but what am I going to do when I get there? Like, it's like. Yeah, like just worrying about it. And that consciousness that sometimes I think white people would have about people of color and the fear around it. And we're having a lot of conversations about that, like ever since. Um, last summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, where people are really questioning the idea of privilege and wondering what that means for them personally. But um, this is like kind of an example of that, but a really like a small miniature bite of it out of um, the salad of life. We're right back with more Margaret Cho. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) 
I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And we're back with Margaret Cho. You know, your stand-up is, it's a mix of a lot of different styles, but you do sometimes do scenes or act-outs. How do you approach that? Do you, do you like to try to see if there's, when you're writing a joke or thinking about it, are you thinking like, oh, is there a way I can do an act-out on this? Like, is it a thing that you like to do when it's there? Is it just sort of organic of like, oh, I mean, obviously for this case, it made sense, but how do you yeah, generally I mean, think, I think about it? Yeah. It's not really that conscious. Like, it's yeah. more... Uh, it's more like when you're telling a story, how do I illustrate it? I mean, like, it's almost like when you act it out, it's like the papers, mm-hmm. you need it. If you need an illustration, maybe that's it. That, that, but it's never that conscious of like, oh, I can do this here. It's, it's more like it. Like I usually, if I write something, I'll, I'll take it on and and perform it on stage. And then the evolution happens while I'm performing it. Yeah. So it's very rarely that I actually like, write down everything that's going on but it's just more in the moment of figuring out oh this probably works better yeah there's there is one moment that feels like that which is um there's the pause before he says anything to you he comes down the way and then he mm-hmm. he's saying and then he just stops and then yeah i imagine there's times where we've milked that forever i met like but it does feel like a oh this is just the audience is on board mm-hmm. let's just say here Mm-hmm. But he it, just, it was, he was scared. I mean, that's yeah. like the funny thing is that he was really scared. And I could see him like his glasses and they were like steaming up a little bit. And then it, he's just like very scared because it was like he didn't expect it or something. Or I don't know what it was, but it was very, it was very funny. Like just a moment of like unsure, like unsure of, uh, what I, what, what can I say? What should Mm -hmm. I say? What do I do? And then like, just, I'm just going to erase it. I'm going to erase it. And then that's, that's, that's the joke, I think. Yeah. And then can you talk more about, you know, you've probably, I mean, I don't know, you probably played the, you did this joke a variety of times. All, what was the experience of every night knowing you're going to get to do that samurai part? It seems like oh, I love so, it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's so fun because it's like very rarely where you can do a samurai face in life. And then, you know, I always love that. Like I always, uh, I love a good samurai face. It's just ever, you know who it is. It's actually inspired by John Belushi. <laughs> I, that's what I thought. Well, especially very, when you this, yeah. with, a, with a sword. It's very John Belushi, which now we can look back and go, well, that's, actually problematic but it's really entertaining i don't know why (laughs) it's really fun 
Yeah, well, it's just so, I mean, like, in this case, it's like the, the contrast of your behavior to what you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. just like, so, I mean, I think when you, first, it's the Mandarin origin. Like, you're every you're saying so few lines, so then when you bring it up, it's like the Mandarin oranges and then um, crispy wonton crunchies. Yeah, which is the best part of a, an Asian chicken salad. I mean, it's like, you have to have crispy wonton crunchies and a corn syrup-based dressing. It's very important. It's really, that's the whole point of eating it. Yeah. Um, were there nights where you did it longer? Were there be versions where you did the act out for like four or five minutes? I don't think so. I think it's like one of those things where it's pretty fast. <laughs> it kind of happens pretty fast, but it's a good, it's a good shot in the arm. Like it's one of those jokes where you go, okay, well, this is a good energy boost mm. here. And it's fun. It was just fun to do. And just kind of get out of the space of like you're changing levels uh, physically and um, vocally. And so I I really uh, always enjoyed doing that. You know, especially with it ending with the sword. I, you know, I was, I was reminded of a line later in the special, which is um, uh, living in America as a minority feels like dying of a thousand paper cuts. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, can you can you talk about that and talk about this joke into fits into something larger you're trying to say with the special? Well, it is really what it is, is I think that time we didn't have the term microaggressions, Yeah, which is actually a very helpful term to kind of talk about these things. There are microaggressions where the um, the othering of you is brought forth in tiny little actions Mm. that you experience from other people. And it goes back to he had a bad day you got a bad day and you <laughs> kill all these people. Like, it's like that, um, that is an example. I mean, that's much more of an overt yeah. microaggression, but it's like hearing those kinds of things in the news, you sort of feel like your otherness somehow is, um, it, 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 it's, it makes you less consequential in society. It makes you less, uh, valuable in society where, um, it, it, it really kind of weighs down on you. So those things um, can really motivate you into silence because you still want to deal with it yeah. or they can motivate you to action, which I think is a better thing to do. Yeah. It, it you know, at the, the special ends with sort of this like revolutionary call on the album version. It, it's literally called, I think Revo- revolution. Yeah, yeah. And you, <laughs> you bring up act up and their motto silence equals death, which you then, sort of adjust to your own, which is silence equals non-existence. Um, right. Can you talk about that philosophy and how that relates to your stand-up? Well, I think it's really, that that's such an important thing because um, being Asian American in the entertainment industry is really about sort of a course in how do you become visible. Mm. And it's almost like that old movie of the Invisible Man when they're putting bandages around him so that he can sort of see himself. That's kind of what we're doing is we're sort of like trying to figure out like where we exist in society by creating this identity that is of bandages because mostly it's of wound, it's of sadness, it's of grief, it's of shock, it's of pain. So kind of emerging in bandages that way, that's how we forge an identity in America. And it's something that I I think is really important. And the way that, coronavirus really mirrors the um, AIDS epidemic Mm. is so interesting because during AIDS, there was so much homophobia and hate violence against gay men because of this mysterious disease. And 
now we're reenacting it with the coronavirus. And so it's, um, it's very parallel. In a way, it gives you more ammunition to cope with it because we've already had a pandemic and sort of learned to live with it and uh, rose above it. And so now it's the second time around. Yeah, the, the, it reminds me of something you said recently on MSNBC, which was, you know, you're saying that the more news coverage we get as Asian people, the more voices are out there on social media, the better. And then you said it's about unwrapping all of these cultural approaches towards trauma and using a very Americanized view towards trauma and healing. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Well, I think that um, when my parents came to America in 1964, they experienced so much racism and uh, just sort of shutting out of society from white people. And it was very alarming to them so that they sought out other communities to belong to, which is the gay community, which is really great. I mean, I think it's really through um, otherness we find ourselves. And so I think that was really an important lesson. And those coping mechanisms um, really should be a part of our language and a part of our history. We don't have a lot of that, like from coming from Korea, I think a lot of their culture is built on saving face and not acting like anything's wrong. That's why I think a lot of these anti-Asian hate crimes are not reported because Mm -hmm. people don't want to call attention to their suffering and amplify it. But the problem is we have to here. It's a different country. It's a different way of life. And we have to all sort of band together in order to make Mm. our voices heard. You you say something in this special, which I feel like if there is a Margaret Cho mantra to comedy is this, which is um, if I don't give too much information, if I don't go there, it was like I was never there in the first place. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it is such a perfect encapsulation of your comedy. <laughs> like, it just sort of mm-hmm. like, it's, it's 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 not just like, oh, I need to take up any space. It's that I have to go so beyond. Can you talk about having that approach? What does it mean? How does that keeps on motivating you? And how does it, as you know, as each special was it mean to find ways to keep on doing that? Well, it's really, I mean, I think, yeah, it's like, I, I get really... Um, I, I get really angry at that face uh, sort of TMI, too much information. Mm-hmm. I need the, t- I, need, I want the information. Like I want to know. And um, even trigger warning to me is a, a version of too much information. Trigger warning is like, don't listen. <laughs> and I want to listen. And so whenever yeah. there's a trigger warning, it encourages me to listen, which, um, you know, can be traumatizing, but I want to know what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about what's going on in the world. And, and so these are important things. Um, if you don't call attention to these issues, then they uh, are like they never happened. And, and it's so important for people to know. Yeah. But beyond issues, it also seems important to you to call attention to your life. Like regard, even like your life that's unrelated to the issues, right? There's a lot of your comedy that is, you know, about sexual experiences, Georgia mm-hmm. sort of general opinions. Is mm-hmm. is that on the same way? Do you feel like, or do you feel like your life ultimately to, to exist as your life is part of these issues? It's part of, I mean, it's part yeah. of it. I think it's also talking about queerness, talking about sex, talking about um, my relationships 
with others in, in a way that uh, I can sort of give a kind of comfort or a kind of understanding to other people mm -hmm. who sort of feel like this is weird. Everything about having a body is weird and kind of dirty. And so to be able to express that as an artist, I think is really vital. Yeah. Has you, have your feelings about your, your own career as it relates to representation evolved from, you know, from the point of All American Girl, which had its, it, a sort of backlash from certain Asian groups about how it, how it wasn't a proper representation of whatever that means of an Asian or an Asian American family. But, you know, it, it does feel like you would then be able to find ways to embrace that in your own way through your stand-up. Ha has there been evolution of how you felt about it, how you felt about either the pressure or, or opportunity? Well, yeah, I think that there's a lot of historical context that I can understand now from my perspective. I mean, when All American Girl premiered, it was 1994, and it was directly after mm. the Koreatown uh, riots, you know? And so the Korean community then was incredibly um, protective of their image because they had never been seen. And then suddenly they're on their rooftops with shotguns while their whole South Central's burning down. And so it's a very um, interesting thing. They go, oh, of course, my appearance would be alarming just because I'm so American and so different mm -hmm. from what they sort of view themselves as. And then they want to somehow censor everything that came after the riots um, because of what happened. And so I think now I understand it's just a knee jerk reaction to the kind of visibility that they didn't expect. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And, and it's also my fault too, because I wasn't acknowledging people who had been here before me, before people who had been in, um, Los Angeles, been in entertainment or been in media, um, who are the generation that came before me, who are a lot more, um, I think had to work through a lot more racism and a lot more of that sort of glass ceiling. If it's mm. even a glass ceiling, I think it's actually like pretty concrete, but it's <laughs> not, it, it, it's my non-acknowledgement of the generation before me had a lot to do with that too. And I, I really regret that. I think that's really sad because now I get so much um, respect and adoration from younger, especially Asian American comedians who really cite me as the first person they saw doing comedy and they thought they could do it too, since they had the example. So I had examples, but I didn't acknowledge them, but they weren't in stand-up comedy. They were in, um, you know, newspapers at that time, people like Connie Chung, who I, I really love. And yet I didn't, I think I didn't understand her struggle. Yeah. You know, I didn't understand um, her achievements until I had gotten to that other side of it. And now I see like, what an amazing thing she was able to do. You know, this week was also the Oscar nominations were announced and an animated mm -hmm. film you're in Over the Moon was nominated. Congratulations. Yeah, <laughs> um, Minari got six nominations, Chloe's yes. out. Scott, um, yes. Considering what's been happening, you know, in your opinion, why, why is representation important? Well, representation is important because it uh, humanizes our experience and it, it creates a, a a lasting bond with the audience that we have stories to tell that are really important. And the inclusion is really about having um, a society that 
has entertainment that mirrors it. And mm. it's really, um, I mean, it's such an amazing thing. Uh, and I love Steven and I love Minari. It's a beautiful film. And, and Yoon, Yoon played my mother in a pilot I did a couple of years ago. And she's just the best. I mean, it's just incredible. So it's a really... I mean, it's it's a really great thing after so many years of disappointment with the Oscars. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a way to kind of understand that we are reaching some point of society getting better, entertainment getting better. I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this So all of this is happening, as we talked about, during a pandemic, and which has prevented you from performing live in front of live people for the first time in decades, I imagine. You know, like I have to imagine this is by far the longest time you've been away. Has everyone I've talked to has have had different responses to it? Have has it made you reflect on either your relationship to your stand-up or what you want from your stand-up? I think both. I mean, I I, I really um understand that being a comedian isn't just a job. It's really a kind of communication that I have with the world. And to not be able to do that is really stifling and um, so surreal because I've been spending um, all of my time as a comedian, even before I was an adult. Mm -hmm. I want to say adult life, but it's actually even before then, well before then. So for me, it's, it's a, uh, it's a crisis of, um, communication it's a it's a crisis of self and it's a it's a really uh depressing thing to not be able to do it and i think most comedians have that i mean there's a lot of comedians that are doing outdoor shows i've been doing a lot of shows uh, online and streaming and that helps there's a certain mm -hmm. kind of uh skill that it takes to be able to do that um so you know it, it's something that we need to do just like breathing um it's really an important way that we interact with the world. Do you, do you have a sense of when you're allowed to fully come back, whenever that is, whatever that looks like, of what you might do differently? I don't know if I would do... Um, well, I think what I would do is that I would appreciate every show more. Sometimes when you're working a lot and, and you get into sort of the grind of traveling and how difficult that is and how difficult... The, the sort of just the, the dailiness of being a comedian is, um, I think I would really approach it with a lot more gratitude, mm -hmm. certainly a lot more grace and certainly pay more attention to what I'm doing. Not that I didn't before, but I really appreciate it much more now that I haven't had it for a year. Yeah. Are you, are you excited to bomb? I ask only because you're one of few comedians that I know that talk about how much they they accept that bombing is part of their process. You, I think you once said you, for um, a comedian at your level, you have worse shows than most people. Like you're still yeah. willing to have bad yeah, you shows. You've got to, or else you, you get it, that? you get locked into something. Um, it's an achievement spiral where you can't break out of it. And it's a trap. It's a creative trap because, you know, we all want to be loved, but, You've got to continue. You've got to go on and keep growing. Um, and grow growth requires pain. And the best, the very, very best comedians bomb. The very, my favorites always bomb. And because they're always willing to try something new and, mm -hmm. and expand their own vision of what they're about. And so I think it's not really being excited to bomb because you never expect to, yeah. but it's more like you just aren't, um, 
I think what is important is for comedians not to take it personally or not to take it as um, an assessment of their worth because it's really just trying out new ideas. Can you think of a time in when you bombed that that you left the bomb better? Can you think of a specific time like you tried something oh. bombed and as a result you then move forward? I went and I did a show at the highest uh, point north I've been able to go, which is Umea. Sweden. Sure. <laughs> and it was so high up. It was the, I guess the latitude was so high that it was like, it, it, it was just different. And at the end of the show, well, the whole show, nobody laughed. It was also my birthday. It's the middle of winter in Sweden, freezing cold. And the entire audience got up and they sang me the national anthem at the end. And then they gave me a knife made of wood. Now I was so much better off <laughs> and I, I realized like it's, it's not bombing when they sing you the national anthem and give you a knife. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good slogan. I think like that's a life lesson. To yeah. To learn. If they I wish I still had that knife. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't take it with me uh, because I, I had to carry on and it was <laughs> a knife. I think a knife on it. Transatlantic flight, but it wasn't made of metal. It was made of wood. Yeah. And I think it was for whales. So it was like, I don't think I'm going to go whaling, but I kind of wish I had it. Um, you talked a little bit about uh, influence. And um, last month I was talking to this comedian, Tony Woods, who was a tremendous influence on Dave Chappelle. Like to this day, if you, you watch Dave, you can see Tony in him. And you influence so many comedians so 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 many people you've performed with people you've talked to mm -hmm. can you remember seeing someone and being able to see part of your reflection in them oh yeah i think um ali wong in in that i also hadn't been able to see another asian american woman do a stand-up comedy special and she's such a genius and so i was so honored and so excited to finally get to see another Asian American woman do that. And she's so raunchy and so raw. And it's just my style of comedy mm -hmm. that I love. And so it's great to be able to feel that, like to feel like, oh, I think I had a, a hand in this. And it's really thrilling to be able to see, to witness. So I think Ali Wong is probably the most profound. And then Ken Jong, Ken Jong and I um, worked together when he was still in med school. And he opened for me, and this is like 27 years ago. So, you know, the, there's so much history that we yeah. have and so much love that I have. And Bobby Lee, of course, is like one of my very favorites. And, you know, so there's so many Asian American comedians that are making such a big difference. And so I really see my influence in a, in a way that's really exciting. Yeah, it's it's a thing that, could, that specifically happens in, in an interesting way with comedy because, you know, like, whether it's five years or 50 years, jokes don't necessarily age like music does or painting does, but like how energy sort of like transfer and move forward. And maybe you're, mm -hmm. you're, is you can, you know, Ali, obviously, I mean, there's also just so many queer comedians that I feel like the entirety of them are like your children. Oh, they're all my children. <laughs> and I love, I love that. I mean, I love them and I love that they're doing so many different things and that they're so, it's 
to me, it's very alive and comedy is like a very living, breathing art form. And when you can see what you've done sort of translate into future generations, it's really empowering. You end that book telling a story about um, a couple, you, I believe they're in Hawaii. Oh, yes, yes. Can you, yes. T- can you tell that story and what it represents well, to what you're trying to do? It was really beautiful. It was a, a gay couple in Hawaii and um, they would listen to my comedy on the way to um, treatments in the hospitals. One of them was dying and it was really, it was really moving. I actually speak to um, the, the, the surviving um, man now. He's wonderful. He still lives in Hawaii and it's really incredible that somebody would take that time to um be comforted by my work. And that that's to me the most amazing thing when you're faced with death and you can find some lightness somewhere, it's really joyful. And so mm. I was really grateful for that. So preparing for the interview, I was thinking about how your mom is one of like the great recurring characters in stand-up history. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, it's like, it's like Mudbone and then your mom, you know? Like- I love Mudbone. I love my bone. And I think of her exactly like my bone in the same that it's a character that sort of is um, almost like the, if there's like a Greek chorus or kind of like coming through. Um, and I've been spending a lot of time with her. She just turned 84. They just, my parents both got the uh, vaccine. Mm-hmm. So now they're like barebacking everything. <laughs> they're like so excited <laughs> to be out. And um, my mom is like, uh, she, she was really funny because she was trying to shop for a fan online. So I went to the Amazon. I did not find the fan that I like. So then I thought, oh, I'm go only fan because they only have fan. So I log on to only fan. They don't have any fan. That's that's the only fan. I did not see any fan there. I did. I saw other thing, but no. <laughs> only fan so she's really funny um and it's a constant yeah what does it mean to that that so many people have a close relationship to her because they have a close relationship to your comedy like she is this important character to culture yeah. in a way what does it well, mean she's to you real. To be able to... she, she, she's <laughs> very real in it and it's very funny it's like that kind of like it's almost like the voice of my own asianness and like um the kind of ancient part of my psyche that sort of keeps drawing me back. And it's almost like this witness to like this big world that we're in that where, you know, where it all came from. So to me, it's really exciting. Um, You know, she's in a space of life where women, especially Asian women become very invisible Hmm. or they're really shunned. That's why the anti-Asian attacks are so upsetting too, because a lot of them are, uh, you know, targeting elderly people people, elderly women in particular. So it's something that I think it's like important to give um, that part of me and this this part of uh, humanity a voice. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, you, it is, it, she really is a, a last, as I said, like it is like a very short list of the characters that you can be like in standup that, that you'd be like, oh, you can point to, she is one of the <laughs> one. Yes. Yeah, she's the best. Ha, 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 ha.
So that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's it's uh it's called the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but I, I call it the laughing round because this is a, a comedy podcast. Yes. Okay. <laughs> cool. You get it. Great. Um, do you have a favorite joke, joke, or even just like a regular joke, like not you know like not material, like a street joke? That do you have a joke that you think? Oh, of? it's um, it's the uh, it's actually from Doug Benson's show, um, the Marijuana Logs, where uh, uh, he talked about having Marvin Gay weed because you get it, you have a hit, and then you're like, what's going on? <laughs> It's so simple, but so I could see all of it and I understand all of it. And Doug is a really old friend of mine. So I knew Doug before he smoked weed. And, uh, but it was so, to me, it's like one of those jokes that just really <laughs> catches. It catches. It's really funny. Um, is there a joke you wish you could steal or a joke that you saw that you were like, oh, I wish I thought of that or I wish I could have that in, in my act? Um... I don't know. I think like, um, oh, you know what I love? Um, Amy Schumer uh, did a joke, something where she was hosting, uh, I think, a Glamour uh, magazine awards or something. She said, I've never hosted anything except for HPV. And I was like, that's a great joke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, for... Preparing to interview you, and also I'm, I'm I'm working on a book. I've been spending a lot of time watching uh, and listening to old sort of uncabaret clips, and I've gotten really into Taylor Negron. And I feel like oh my god, he's he, so great. He's a comedian that you know you don't hear tons about for a variety of reasons. And I just wanted to know if you had any stories about him you'd like to share. Um, so he, I don't even know that what the joke was, but he he was talking about his mother and a, about uh, something. Oh, he molested Lana. Like, that's how you would identify somebody in, in like, your family or something. Oh he, oh, he molested Lana. Like, the way that he says it, and you can see, like, Taylor's giant eyes, like, he molested Lana. And the way he, I miss him a lot. And uh, it's just somehow he says words that are just really funny and, it's a style it's a it's a look it's an era he's um it's iconic (laughs) he's iconic he molested lana um do you have any joan stories joan um was so um just like she was so quiet like in a week like very quiet in a way and you would never expect that from her and I met her in um, I think in the nineties and she was like giving me an award for something and she wanted to be friends. And she was like making it very like clear that she wanted to be friends with me. And then she had just launched her jewelry line on QVC that I'll send you some of my jewelry. And I told her at that time, I didn't wear, I go, I don't wear jewelry. And she turned her back to me and didn't talk to me for two years. <laughs> so <laughs> after she got over the fact that I didn't wear jewelry, we, we sort of became friends, but, she was really shocked by that. <laughs> um, this might be a no, but I've. Did you in the early nineties? I do not know what year. Did you perform a comedy show in Golden Gate Park, maybe with Bobcat Goldthwait? Yes. Because yes. if so, 
That's the first comedy show I ever went to. Oh wow, that's great! And I, you know, uh, I was Bill very, Hicks was I, there too. I had no. I literally was like, I didn't hadn't probably have not thought about this in twenty years, twenty five years. And I was like, was I at a comedy show? Was Margaret Cho? Do you remember anything about that show? Yeah, um, Bill Hicks was there, and he was on his way to the airport because he had just played the weekend at Cobb's, maybe. And um, so he uh, had on. I remember he had on a U.S. Postal Service hat cap that had blood stains. Because at that time, remember it was like going postal. It was like yes. a visible joke of like a blood stained postal worker hat, and he just put his bags down and he went and he performed and he got his bags and then he left. But um, yeah, that was comedy day in Golden Gate Park, which was a very big event um, yeah. that Robin Williams would always uh, headline. We'd always be last. It was all the San Francisco comedians, all the Bay Area comedians, and probably whoever was working at the weekend because um, it was on a Sunday. So you got any, usually in Sunday morning, you would have like comics still around from the clubs. So this will be the last one. Um, do you have a joke that you can think of um, or anything that you've, that you've done on stage that you really thought was so funny and was so great and you try it on stage and over and over again, it doesn't work? But you'll go to your grave being like, that is the the one that got away. That's they um, I was right. They were wrong. I think um I tried to do this joke about how I I tried to commit suicide one time and I hung myself from my shower curtain, but then I was as I was hanging, the the curtain started bending. And it was like, oh shit, I'm too fat to kill myself. Like that, that to me is really funny, but people don't know that's a trigger warning. <laughs> suicide and um that's where you flash the suicide hotline yes. number but it's very it, to me it's really funny because it's like oh i'm too fat to kill myself is a is a funny thought i could see why it is hard to get to work yeah like <laughs> i'll go on a diet i'll try again you know <laughs> when i reach my ideal weight <laughs> the, the end um that's that is perfect <laughs> um thank you so so much for your time and for thank you everything and for being the first comedian that i saw and um everything this is i'm so grateful thank you thank you that's it for another episode of good one you can stream revolution on video on demand hysterical airs on fx on april 2nd and on hulu thereafter follow margaret on social media at margaret cho good one is produced by myself jelani carter hannah rosen and camila salazar gotham shikashin did our theme song Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. And if you haven't, please check out my new Patreon podcast, The Specials. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next Thursday. Have a good one. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.